It's something for nothing. The Rush Fan Cast. Jerry and Steve with you. Jerry, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Steve. Did you get everything you wanted for Christmas? I did. I did. Did you get everything you wanted? Yes, of course. How are you enjoying 2022 so far? Let's hope it's better than 2021. <laughs> That's all I have to say. You know, full disclosure, we're recording this on December 22nd, so we have no idea how it's going so far, do we? No, we have no idea what we got for Christmas, if anything. <laughs> That's true. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Rush Fancast. Instagram, you can find us at The Rushcast. Email Jerry, therushcast at gmail.com. The bass intro and outro, he's back for 2022, Jer. It's Lex. <laughs> Follow or subscribe via your favorite podcast app. And Jer, I hope you have a great email to kick off the year for us. I do. This is from Chris. What's up, Chris? He's from Columbia, South Carolina. He says, thank you both for your hard work and dedication to this podcast. You two keep Rush alive through your podcasts, and I look forward to listening to each episode. That's nice of him, right? Very nice. I am 49 and grew up in Augusta, GA. My Rush origin story is pretty cool and probably missed meeting them by only a few hours way back in 1986 in Augusta. Rush played Augusta, Georgia, of all places, on the Power Windows Tour. They always play Atlanta, where I lived for 20 years later on, and Charlotte, North Carolina, but this stop was their only show in Augusta ever. I had just turned 14 at the time and was listening to The Cars, Huey Lewis, and whatever was on the radio. I'm the oldest of three brothers and also was a shy teenager. I was, and still am, a huge tennis player, and at the time, a highly ranked state and national player who trained every day at the big public tennis center in Augusta. Well, one day, arriving to my junior tennis club, my coach at the time informed me that two guys from Rush had just played for a few hours there and had left four tickets to the Power Windows show that night. Wow. It was Getty and Alex. My mom, I still can't believe it, allowed my coach, Doug, to take me and two friends to that show. It was my second show ever. I had seen Loverboy and the Hooters first. <laughs> well, my coach was a casual fan of Rush. He played us moving pictures prior to the show. We had seats Alex side, about five rows up, literally aside so we could see everything clearly. I think maybe about 3,200 people were there that night. He says, BOC opened. Blue Oyster Cult. Blue Oyster Cult. Come on, Jer. Blue Oyster Cult opened. Let's cut that in so it sounds like I know what I'm talking about. Blue Oyster <laughs> Cult opened, and I honestly wasn't moved. When Rush started, it was louder and immediately impactful. I was blown away. Lasers, spinning huge drum kit. Obviously, I only knew Tom Sawyer and Limelight because my coach said, pay attention to those two especially. Well, I left the arena hooked, and they have been my favorite band ever since. I saw them 14 times, I think. That next night, I went out and got moving pictures, signals, and power windows on tape. The next year, I went through the entire catalog. Best moment at a show was R30 in Nashville. It was the tour opener, second row in front of Getty's keyboards. The whole show was amazing, but the best part was the start of Between the Wheels. I am 6'1", and was literally in front of Getty at about six beers deep at that point in the set list. The first note of the keyboard, I just started jumping up and down, yelling, yeah. The reaction, at least around me, wasn't loud because this was a deeper track. And as Getty started to sing, I was singing right along with him, and he was obviously taking notice of me. When he came to the end of the first verse into the chorus, he did a head nod and mouthed, yeah, to me. I was pumped. I went on to see them two nights later, about two rows back center in Charlotte, and I was wearing the same Atlanta Braves jersey and hat. I got the Getty wink a few times that night as well. Sadly, I never got that close again, but still within 20 rows or so. Thanks so much for your podcasts, and happy holidays. Chris. 
Thanks, Chris. Now that is a unique Russia origin story. I love it. Isn't it? It's very cool. Guys playing tennis in the afternoon. Very nice of Getty and Alex to leave tickets for just whoever. I know. Four of them too. That's amazing. So Jerry, we talked about Getty's My Favorite Headache last month. I remember that. And I did some Twitter polls. Wow. It's been a while, right? It's been a while. Are you ready? Sure. To get them wrong? To get them wrong, yes. I asked the Rush fans their favorite tracks on My Favorite Headache. We started with the first four. Your choices are My Favorite Headache, The Present Tense, Window to the World, and Working at Perfect. Mm, Let's go with My Favorite Headache. Correct. Very good. Wow. 45% My Favorite Headache. Working at Perfect came in second at 21%. Window to the World was 17%. And the present tense was 16%. All right. Poll two. Runaway Train, The Angel's Share, Moving to Bohemia, or Home on the Strange? Mm, Moving to Bohemia. Incorrect. (laughs) That came in fourth, Jer. Come on. Oof. Home on the Strange was first, 31%. The Angel's Share came in second, 29%. That's your favorite, right? Yeah. And Runaway Train was 25%. Moving to Bohemia, only 15%. Eh, What are you going to do? All right. Here's number three. Oh, boy. Slipping, Still, or Grace to Grace? Uh, Let's go with Grace to Grace. Grace to Grace. Nice. 69% still came in second at 23% and slipping slipped to 8%. How about that? (laughs) That's that's great. All right. Two out of three. This is going good for me. Two out of three. So here's the last one. Yeah. My favorite headache, home on the strange or grace to grace. What is the rush fans? Number one song on my favorite headache. Um, let's say grace to grace. Yes. Really? Three out of four. Very good, Jer. Nice. Grace to Grace, 56%. My Favorite Headache, 30%. And Home on the Strange, only 13%. Hmm. So there you go. Grace to Grace. And I agree. That's my favorite song on the record, too. Yeah. Good song. So, Jer, I ran across a great article on LinkedIn a few weeks ago. It was published about a week after Neil Peart's death, which is now coming up on on two years ago, believe it or not. Yeah. The article was titled, He Lived the Lives of Ten Men, Lessons I've Learned from Neil Peart. And the author of the article is the president of Coin Branding, Inc. in Toronto, Ontario, Andres Pone. Welcome to the Rush Fancast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. This is, this is, this is great. It's a lot of fun. We haven't even started on having fun all day. So <laughs> pretty cool. We really appreciate you joining us, and we'd like to start out Andres, by asking our guests their Rush origin story. When did you first hear Rush and how did you become a fan? I love it. Um, The year was about 1982. I was 14 years old in 82. And my brother, my older brother, how many times have older brothers figured into these stories? eh? Oh, all the time. Yeah, many. Yeah. He's three years older and he had a cassette tape of exit stage left. And I heard that and I, I took over, I, I, I grabbed that tape and I listened to it over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah. So that's really how I, 
How I Fell in Love. What an incredible album. I, I still, you know, I'm biased, but uh, I, I still think that that's the greatest, their greatest live work. And uh, I remember, it, I don't know if you, if you guys ever had an opportunity to listen to that cassette tape, but, you know, you can't, it's not like a CD, obviously, where you can go as long as you want in, in one direction or through one song, if you, if you will. And I think it was the beginning of Xanadu that was broken up between side A and side B because they couldn't fit it all there. So, and, and there used to be this, this advisory on cassette tapes that said something about song continuity may be affected due to the limitations of cassettes or something like that. And, and it wasn't until later that I figured out exactly how Xanadu was, was formulated because it wasn't clear to me when they, I think they finished the trees and then went into Xanadu and there was a long sort of, mm-hmm. you know, the Getty playing the, the keyboards there. And um, yeah, wow, that's, that's very wonky. But uh, that, that was the experience with uh, Exit Stage Left. And then where'd you go from there? Did you just devour everything? You know, I, I didn't devour everything. I didn't go back that far at that time. So my first tour, and I've got the, uh, the tickets. I have many of my Rush uh, tickets and I've seen them 21. I saw them 21 times. And my very first show, I grew up in Ottawa, Ottawa, Canada, the capital of Canada. And in that era, and probably still now, Rush, if they're touring in that part of the world, are more likely to go to Montreal because Montreal is, is a two hour drive away and it's a much bigger city. So I went to go see Rush for the very first time at about that age, 14, 15 at the fabled Montreal Forum, the home, the old home of the Montreal Canadiens. Mm-hmm. And that was the Signals Tour. And I still have that ticket. And I've been able to cross-reference that ticket to, um, I've been able to figure out which is my first ever Rush concert because the information on that ticket is faded. But now, of course, you can look up certain details online about you know, what, where they played when. And I've triangulated that and figured out that, yeah, that was my very first show, Signals. So... To answer your question in an early roundabout way, I, I kind of stayed, I, I didn't dive into things like 2112 until much later. I didn't dive into hemispheres or, or fly by night until, until much later. I was very much at the, in the early going and perhaps because I could say left is so heavily permanent waves and moving pictures. I, that's really where I started. So in your LinkedIn article, Andrews, you said you were inspired by a tweet you saw when Neil Peart died. He lived the lives of 10 men. And when talking about Neil, that, that's really not an exaggeration, is it? I think I had a, a general appreciation of, of what a Renaissance man he was, but it wasn't until diving really deep, as I'm sure you guys did as well, after his death, diving really deep into stories about him and, and reading those accounts, that I really came to understand exactly how incredibly busy he was and how busy he wanted to keep himself. And uh, yeah, I, I just think it's it's very very inspiring the, the stories that were told of him. And I can't remember which which musician it was, but it, it might have been the one who who made that tweet. The stories of him cycling, let's say fifty or seventy five miles from one venue to the next, and then arriving and having a conversational French lesson at the arena, and then doing the sound check. I might get be getting things a bit out of order, you know. Then sound check. Then uh, I don't know if he was doing meet and we know he didn't do many meet and greets, but he might have done a bit of that. And then pounding away for two hours in front of 15,000 people. I mean, it's unbelievable. 
but like who I, I'd want to be locked in my own room away from humanity the whole day if I had to go do something like that. So the fact that he was out there making the most out of every single moment, as I'm sure you gentlemen know, what was one of his expressions? He wanted to do the most excellent thing every day, right? And and he did that, and it's it's incredibly inspiring. Now, in your article, you said that you teach your students. Well, I guess when you when you are teaching students, you teach them about rush. So, what exactly do you? What exactly are you teaching them about rush, and and how do they respond? to you talking about a rock band? So I don't teach many students. I'm not a teacher per se. I have given, so my, my discipline is branding. So I'll, I'll put a pin in that just for a second of what that means. Just to finish that thought, I have given some lectures to business students at that university because I went to a particular business school and I, I've gone back there a few times. So mostly I'm talking to my clients. And for years now, I have made Rush an integral part, their story an integral part of what I'm teaching because fundamentally branding is about being different. It's about not taking the path that everyone else is taking. It's about not trying to appeal to all people. It's about trying to figure out what you enjoy and then go and do that, going and doing that, whether other, you know, certain people aren't going to like that. And that's the essence of branding. It's trying to create a niche. And I don't think there's a better brand branding example in the world than Rush because, and I tell the story in, in every presentation that I do when I'm getting started with a client about the first two albums doing pretty well. And the record company was pretty happy with that. And then came Caress of Steel. And of course the band called it the Down the Tubes Tour, illustrating their deprecating, uh, self-deprecating sense of humor. And, um, I'm practically reciting my presentation now, but <laughs> suddenly instead of uh, opening for Kiss in 12 or 15,000 seat arenas, they're opening for Ted Nugent and bars for, for 20 people. And the record company says, hey, we know what the problem is. The songs are too long. We want you to go into the studio and create some three and four minute radio friendly hits. And Rush says, good Canadian boys that they are. I'm a Canadian. I'm a good Canadian boy. So are they. Um, sure, we can do that. And then they come out with 2112. <laughs> song so long it takes up the entire side one of the album and i generally get a little chuckle over that and um the idea that they uh, they decided to pour on the gasoline they knew that they were on the precipice of failure and if they were going to go out then they're going to go out on their own terms so in the blaze of glory but of course 2112 bought them their freedom and from that moment on they could do they had carte blanche they could do whatever they wanted so i i'll, I'll finish by saying that Getty Lee refers to Rush as the world's biggest cult band, and I would call them the world's biggest cult brand. And I want my clients to be like Rush. I don't want them to try to appeal to everybody. I want them to do what they want to do and find their niche and work really hard at doing what they want to do. And the people who are picking up what you're putting down, they're going to stay loyal to you. And loyalty in business is obviously extremely important. Your clients stay loyal to you. And they're going to forgive certain things that. Uh, you know, may, that you do that maybe aren't as stellar uh, as you would want them to be. And Rush did have some ups and downs in terms of their, their albums. And um, it's interesting. I work with a lot of financial advisors. And one of the big issues um, with financial advisors is they're trying to get the next generation of wealth. Right now, there's the world's, uh, the, big, the history's biggest transfer of wealth to the baby boomers, from the baby boomers to the next generation, to the younger generation. 
And I use Russian as, as an example of intergenerational <laughs> wealth transfer because I've got a picture in my presentation of a guy in his 40s probably, and he's right at the front with his arms up cheering. And who is beneath him, probably four feet tall, a, a little boy is probably his son. And he's got the headphones on and he's cheering too. And that's intergenerational wealth transfer. That's loving a brand so much that you want to pass it on to the next to the next generation. So yeah, that's that's the story that I tell. So when you mention Rush to your clients, Andrus, I would imagine a few of them have never heard of Rush. So how do you <laughs> how do you explain to them oh, yeah. that this is Rock's greatest brand, but you've never heard of them? <laughs> you know, that is the whole point. It's the whole point. And what I do is I start like this. I say, okay, we're going to change gears here a little bit. After the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, which band has the most consecutive gold and platinum studio albums in history? And they go, okay, let's see. Um, bon Jovi, no. Uh, Eagles, no. Uh, U2, no. So they'll go through some bands like that. And then I'll say, okay, I'm going to show you this two and a half minute trailer and we'll talk after. And the trailer is of Rush Beyond the Lightest Stage. If you want to explain Rush to somebody in two minutes and a bit, I don't think there's a better way to do it. Watch this trailer. And if, if you're familiar with that trailer, it tells a story in a, in a nutshell. And the whole point is that almost no one ever guesses Rush. Almost. I've probably given that presentation in keynotes to hundreds of people in you know, hotel auditoriums. In, in boardrooms, on Zoom, I've probably given that presentation 50 times. And I would say that maybe three times out of those 50 times, someone has said Rush. The whole point is that they don't know that it's that band. And that band has still been incredibly successful on their own terms. They haven't sold 200 million albums, like, I don't know, maybe the Beatles. But 40 million-ish is an awfully good record. And, and all the other accolades, as, as we know. So your first life lesson, Andrus, is never sell out. And, you know, that comes across in 2112, of course, how important is it for any brand to try and not please everyone, you know, just do what you want and hope others like it, as you say in the article. Well, you know, the risk of doing that is that you can fail. Your, your likelihood of, of failing is it, it, it could be higher than if you tried to, for, first of all, I don't, I fundamentally don't believe that you can appeal to everyone. I think that's, that's a mirage. It's a myth. You're just wasting your time if, if you want to do that. Could you try to appeal to a mass market? You, you, you could try that. What I'm saying is that I believe that you will get, and using Russia as the example, that at the end of the day, you'll, you'll get a higher degree of loyalty than you otherwise would. And I think that your, your work will, quite frankly, be easier. And by that, I mean, and Getty Lee has said this a number of times, he says, it's great to pat us on the back for doing what we wanted to do. And hey, you guys are great, Rush, for doing that. But we, we have to keep in mind that without the fans being coming along for the ride with us and being patient in a way, none of this ever would have happened. So I'm not sure how good an answer that is to your <laughs> question. Well, at one point in the article, you, you do quote Neil. Uh, he says, we make music we like and hope other people like it too. Yeah. And I guess that's just the essence of connecting in a certain way, right? Finding, finding a tribe that believes the same thing. That's sort of the, 
the, the idea behind branding in general? That is absolutely the idea. And I have a slide that says exactly that. We make music we like, and we hope other people like it too. And I've got the word hope bolded or a different color to emphasize that what we're doing here is not predicated on what other people will like. We hope other people will like it. Uh, and right beneath that, it says rush mission statement. That, that is what branding is, is all about, in my view, because it's fundamentally about being different. If you're the same as everyone else, why should anyone choose you? Your second point in the article is practice, practice, practice. Yeah. Can you talk about how practice in whatever your chosen field is in your life, getting good at something yeah. is definitely the key to succeeding like Rush did? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I respect them greatly for that. I believe in that piece. I quoted the drummer from Death Cab for Cutie, and he was saying how, how much he respected his hero for not just saying, I'm done, for saying that, not done quitting, but I'm done as far as I'm not going to try, I'm not going to try to get any better. I'm just going to, I'm just going to cruise. And having the, the guts to actually rework his style after he'd already been an elite drummer for, for a really long time. So always trying to be better. And I'll, I'll, I'll think of this from a branding point of view, which probably wouldn't surprise you. The difference, one of the, one of the challenges out there with the investment advisors that I work with who are, who are my core clients and also the corporate work that I've done. And just generally, one of the big problems that, is that everyone is, there's a lot of sameness out there. There's a lot of similarity out there. So if you're selling insurance products, your investment products, those are the same products from one advisor to the next. And how are you going to differentiate? Well, becoming better at your craft, at the craft that goes around the selling and the, the management of those products is a powerful way to do that. And I think we all know that the reason that we would respect someone like Neil Peart so much for dedicating himself to practice and always getting better is that it's really tough and it's tiring and not many people do it. So from a branding and business point of view, that, that is a strategic advantage right there, always trying to be better. And it's really tough. You know, in my work, do I really actually practice? In other words, I do a lot of writing. I, I create names for clients. I create taglines for clients. I write their websites, that, that sort of thing. Do I ever go off somewhere and do some creative writing to try to hone my craft? I actually don't. I, spend my, I seem to spend my time, and that's a fault in my business model, just doing the client work, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fudge that a little bit and say that maybe by always trying to do better work myself, because I'm not complacent, maybe we could argue that that's a form of practice and trying to always be better and, and, and stand out. Well, that's also the good thing about Rush in general, though, I think, is because, you know, they had this huge skill set. They could do basically anything, right? They could do a hemispheres and then 10 years later do a hold your fire. I mean, that's ridiculous, right? <laughs> to think that the same band could do those two hugely different things. They are so utterly different. And if you were to play those albums or selections from those records to the uninitiated, they would go, what is this, man? Like, how is this even possible? Right. Um, I think about a song like Time Stand Still. Help me out. Is that from, is that from Hold Your Fire? That's from Hold Your Fire, yeah. That's from Hold Your Fire, yeah. I mean, compare that to um, 
I don't know, the necromancer. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, you know, or Anthem or something, or Beneath, Between and Behind, that one. Yeah. I mean, that, if listen to that on Exit Stage Left, that's like speed metal. They're going at triple speed and at this ridiculously high register in his voice. And then compare that to Time Stands Still. I mean, it's <laughs> with, with a woman singing it, which is wonderful. We can all agree on that. So, Andersa, uh, your next lesson is give yourself a chance. Now, the, the death of Neil's first wife and daughter could have destroyed him, but he gave himself a chance. How can we use this lesson in our lives just to never give up, right? That's a really, really, really tough one. Because what he did there was, it was just superhuman. Uh, I mean, how could anyone do that? Maybe the key is to not, is to not idolize the man too much. Because if you, if you hold him on too much of a pedestal for doing that, you might end up having the unintended effect of believing yourself that it's not possible. But I don't know. Right. I don't know how. I don't know how he could do something like that. I've, I've certainly applied that principle in my own life since that time. So I'm, I've, I've gone back to that article every once in a while and, and reread it and reminded myself that this is something that takes work. Neil Peart had to work at stuff. He even, he even downplayed his own talent, his own intrinsic, his own inherent talent. So we do need to work at things. I think that that could be the most important lesson of all. Who am I, right? I'm, I'm, I'm one Rush fan, but that could be the most important lesson. Give yourself a chance because if he did it after everything he went through in such a short period of time and not only survived, but, but thrived, then, then I think at the end of the day, there is, there is hope for us. We should take great hope in that. I've looked at interviews from, first of all, if you look at interviews from the period before his wife died, he seemed very reserved. He did not, let, let's say that he didn't seem jovial. I haven't watched it, everything from that period, but he, I wouldn't say he, he seemed jovial. And then uh, in the period after his wife died, and of course he returned after that hiatus, it seemed to me that he was, he was hurting. But then something happened. If you look at, let's say, the period 2010 to 2015, and the interviews in there, he was jovial. He, he came back to life. In fact, I think he, he seemed... I never met the man, but just by watching those interviews, he seemed happier than he had ever been. There's a great interview on CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. I'm sure you could, you could watch that anywhere where he's being interviewed by a reporter by the name of uh, George Strombolopoulos. Neil is giving a track-by-track -track account of moving pictures. I guess that was around, what anniversary would that have been around? That was probably around the 30th anniversary of that record. And he was just so energetic and happy and full of life to be talking about that record, even though in a, in a public setting with a live audience, even though we know that he didn't want to be in the public eye other than being on stage too often. So I, I think that's miraculous the way he came back. Yeah, I think a large part of that too is having hope, right? Yeah. The feeling that at some point things are going to get better and you've just got to be there, you know, with yourself until you can get through it all. Yeah. Um, so I just get tingles thinking about that because you referenced a line from, from Ghost Rider in which he obviously tells that story and he, and he says he kept holding on to the idea that 
something will come up. Something will come up. Right. And uh, I know I've, uh, I've used that myself since that time. I, that was a line that he might have got from a, a relative, perhaps. I'm not sure. We'd have to go back in the book. But it's very powerful stuff. Something will come up. So uh, lesson number four, Andrus, is be a professional. And I just love how you tell us how Neil made you rethink mm-hmm. what being a professional is. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I've, uh, in my work with clients, we, I, uh, I talk to their clients to find out what my clients are like. Uh, I say that, a, and it, uh, I say a brand is what people think of you. A brand is what people think of you. That is uh, something that I learned from my mentor in the world of branding. His name is Ted Matthews, and that's, that's uh, his line. A brand is what people think of you. So I want to know what other people think. Uh, I want to know what you as the client thinks, and I want to know what other people think of you. And that word professional will come up from time to time. People will describe someone else as professional. They will describe themselves as, as professional. And I've thought of that as uh, kind of a minimum standard. If you're not professional, then what are you? You know, if you're not superlative, then you could be great, right? But if you're, if you're not professional, you go very quickly to being, you know, are you unprofessional? But Neil thought and did in his own life around being a professional that time on the, on the final tour when his feet, one or both feet, right, got infected. Mm-hmm. The water got into his motorcycle boots and he was in pain and he was watching at the break, everyone having a good time but him. And him saying, you know, you don't go out there with your frailties. You, know, you just you go out there. And I can't remember if in that context, he said, be a professional, but that's, that's what it was all about. It's the difference between being professional and being a professional. And I think there's a great deal of pride in being a professional. That means sucking it up. That's what that, that means. And um, sometimes we have to do that in order to honor ourselves, I think, and, and honor the people around us. Let's suck it up a bit and be a professional. Yeah. I mean, that comes up not just in the context of you know playing a rock concert when you don't want to but you got to show up every day right there's some things in your in your life whether you have kids or you know your family whatever yeah. sometimes you don't feel like doing it and you just have to show up and and when you slip it's easy for people to notice right i'm probably not aware I, i'm let's just say i'm not aware of all my slips but there have been a couple times when i've said wow i was not as prepared as I should have been for that. And I could really feel it. And I think the client might've felt it too. And that is the worst. That is the worst place to be. Unprepared, unprofessional. Yeah, even in your personal life though, not your personal life, but you know, in yeah. one's personal life, you know, like what do you do to prepare for life? How do you collect the skills needed in order to, you know, perform on a daily basis just for the people who need you, right? Mm-hmm. That's a big one. That's a tough one. It is, right? That's a hard one. That's a a really big one. Because I don't know the answer to that either. And obviously, you know, being in a rock band, being an entity as a rock band, you know, there are certain stresses on your life that uh, rock fans cannot fathom. Everybody thinks it's just show up, play a gig and move on. But there's the business aspect of it or whatever. And you have to put all of that out of your mind and show up on stage and do the thing that everybody just paid hundreds of dollars to see you do. That's got to be a lot of pressure. And, you know, you got to be prepared for that, right? I don't think that 
musicians and other performers get nearly enough credit for that, for showing up and for pumping it out night after night. The stress on the average human being would, would crush them. And there's, I think there's a lot more in musical talent, and a, let's just say talent, uh, involved in being a successful band, especially for a period, a long period of time, a successful performer, a successful professional athlete. Getting out there, I mean, think about athletes for a second. Headlining artists don't generally get booed. <laughs> <laughs> Headlining athletes get booed all the time. Can you imagine going to a rush show and eh, people just weren't feeling limelight tonight and we, we're going to boo you for that. <laughs> that would never, ever happen. Right. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think uh, musicians, artists get enough credit for how incredibly hard it must be. Like playing the show is one of, I don't know, a hundred things they've done today. It's, it's, not, it's not the only thing. And you would have to be, my desire would be to lock to be locked in a box before the show. But um, if you want to have any kind of life, as we know the guys in Rush have, it's an incredible skill, and I think something that we can all be inspired by. That ability to do other stuff in your day, do other important things, and then when the time comes, go. I mean, uh, you're, you're, uh, I imagine performers like Rush would be fulfilling their own needs at the same time, but also fulfilling the needs of so many thousands of people who have really high expectations, really high expectations. This isn't, uh, I'm not going to slam any bands, but th these aren't guys who are, you know, just playing three chords and getting out there. This is really complicated, intense, long stuff. Alex Lifeson has said, you know, it's a lot of notes. <laughs> how do you, how do you remember all that stuff? I don't know. Right. I guess it's also a bit of a compartmentalizing too, right? Yeah. Um, you mean the different aspects of, of what it takes the business side. Yeah. The pre-show side. Yeah. The show side, your family life that you're missing all of these things. You just have to put them in their little slots and go on with your day. I think a normal person would be very, very stressed out by all that stuff. I mean, if you have an argument with your spouse before you go on stage in front of thousands of people, <laughs> how does that work? Right. And you can't just not do it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, back to Alex. I remember him saying he was asked whether he gets nervous on stage and he's saying, no, never nervous, but I do get stressed. And I think he might've been referring to the before the show. And he said, the stress was, worse when he was in Toronto at home because there's more expectations on let's say family friends and so on about tickets and all that kind of stuff so I'd, I'd find that dividing line quite interesting he can feel which would be completely normal stressed about the pre-show stuff so lesson number five Andrus is the quote you mentioned earlier from Neil which is an amazing one what's the most excellent thing I can do today why is it so hard for most of us to follow through on that, like Neil did every day. Yeah, that is, that's, uh, that's such a tough one. We all have the same number of hours in the day, right? And yet some of us are able to squeeze a lot more out of it than others. And as I referenced earlier, it's, I think it's important not to get discouraged <laughs> that we can't all maybe operate at that level that Neil Peart did in terms of doing all the, all the stuff that he did. It's just the busyness of everyday life. But that gets in the way. But I, I'm thinking that it's the fact that he had 
interests and he wanted to have interests and he would talk about never being bored because he didn't have time to be bored. What? There's so many things in this world to be interested in. And if you look at Alex, it's uh, golf and, and painting. And I'm sure I'm not naming all the things that they do, but uh, you know, you look at Getty and it's collecting baseball memorabilia, being interested in wine and travel and all, all that kind of stuff. It's and then the whole the big beautiful book of base, which uh, which I have, and that's the one time that I met Getty Lee, by the way, at uh, the book signing here in Toronto for that book. So it takes effort, man. It takes effort. It takes effort. It's like starting anything. You know how hard it is to start something, and then it, once you get going, oh, okay, finally it's it's easier. So hey, I aspire to do more, and and of all the. Uh, of all those lessons, I think that is, well, I don't know. They're, they're all very important. They're all very important. That, that's, that's a big one because who doesn't want to be, I, I, I don't know. Maybe some people don't want to be a Renaissance man. I, I, I find the idea of being a Renaissance man pretty cool. I'm not. Um, but adding a few more things, adding a few more notches to my belt in terms of the stuff I, I'm doing would, you know, is, is something that I'd like to do. Yeah, you know, a lot of us came smack against that idea of, doing something excellent every day when we started working from home when covid you know took over and we had extra hours in the day mm-hmm. <laughs> and we found ourselves not doing much with them mm. as much as we thought that we could do so there is an aspect of you know not just having the time to do it but having like you said having the interest in doing things which i think is one of the most important things you can have on any given day isn't is an interest in something and that drives you to do it. I think the, the irony there is that you have to force some people, myself included, and in some cases, you have to force yourself sometimes to be interested. Again, once you take something up, I just took up uh, CrossFit, right? High, what is it? High intensity interval training. And it's a brand of that. And uh, I drove and walked by that, <laughs> the CrossFit gym in my neighborhood for months. Before I finally did it, I had a ton of trepidation because it's tough and all those people are in such incredible shape. And how am I going to fit in and figure it out? And do I belong and all that stuff? And it's going to be hard and it's going to feel terrible. It took, I don't know, a week for me to really get into it. It was super hard. But once you get started, that's the key. Get started. So, Anders, have any of your clients who you've spoken to about Rush gone and listened to the band? <laughs> and become fans? That's a, that's a really good question. I don't know. No one has specifically said that, although uh, I can think of a client who <laughs> he's said before in celebrating his own difference, and he, he really stands out in the investment advising world. Uh, he said, Andrews, look, hey, man, uh, I don't care what they're doing over there. I'm not going to change. I'm over here playing Tom Sawyer. And I don't whatever they're doing <laughs> over there, they can just keep doing it. And I just love that. Obviously, I get very excited about that when someone really buys in in that way. The thing that stands out to me about Rush's brand is I think it's getting stronger even after yes. they've retired. Do you, do you agree with that? I do. And it's, it's, uh, it's hard for mega rush fans like us to, cause we've got our antenna up, right? It's like seeing the, the, the pink 
Oh, I don't know, the yellow VW bug. Once you see one, you're going to see more. And that's just a testament to the staying power and the epically epic nature of the music. And the whole, and this is the first time I thought of this, I'll ask you what you guys think of it. Here we have a band that played, uh, Jerry, as you've pointed out, Hemispheres, and they also played Hold Your Fire. And regardless of that, it's really fascinating that they still, and the niche audience changed. I think we, they would tell, the band would say, and I think we could agree, although I can't say I really noticed the difference in the audience, but a lot of people dropped Rush when they entered the synthesizer era. So they, they, they changed audiences over time. But maybe the legacy there and the staying power of the band could have something to do with the fact that there's a whole range of music in there. Someone new to the band, let's say a young person or, or not, not so young, might listen to Time Stand Still and like that. And someone else completely different, and they might hate Hemispheres, fine. Someone else can pick that up. So there's kind of a built-in breadth there in order for fans of all kinds to grab onto. Yeah, I agree with that completely. Because there is so much difference in their music, but that's what's the same about their talent, <laughs> is that they've always done different things yeah. like that. So I think their fans, for the most part, probably right after 2112, when Farewell to Kings came out and it started a lot differently than 2112 started, people were probably like, yeah, okay, this is, this is the band. They're just going to do something different every single time. And I think the, the audience that they've built over the years likes that. They, they like to be challenged mm -hmm. by their favorite band. Definitely. And I know that as a fan, and maybe this is not what the band would intend, but there, there is that yearning in every new album to hear something new and at the same time hear something from the past, something recognizable from the past. I think about... Actually, I've got it on my, on my wall here. You gentlemen can see it because we're on Zoom. That is the, uh, my brother got it for me. That's the platinum album for Power Windows. Oh, wow. Yes. And it just, there's just a little placard on the bottom there, right? And it just so happens that that was the first Rush album released directly to CD. So there you go, a little trivia, 1985, I guess it was. And uh, after, what was the album before that? Was it um, Grace Under Pressure? Yes. Yes. Grace Under Pressure. After that, people were kind of yearning for something. Some people were yearning for something heavier. And you think about the way Big Money starts. It's a brand new sound, totally brand new sound. It's very 80s. And yet, oh, actually, no, I'm not thinking about the beginning of Big Money. I'm thinking towards the end, that final da-na-na, 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 that, uh, anyway, I think you guys know what I'm talking about. Um, it echoes back to those earlier, uh, those earlier times. And that, that, that gives you a thrill. So, Andres, uh, you've got a new book out. It's called Attract, Power Up Your One-of-A-Kind Personal Brand. Can you tell us about your book? Thank you. Yeah, it's been out for, it's been out for a little while. It is a do-it-yourself book on personal branding. So what you can do is read the book and write your own uh, four-element personal brand foundation. So what I maintain is that it, it's not a new idea, but what I maintain is that you need to get your brand down on paper, out of your brain, down on paper, and 
end up with some, some key statements that define who you are and where you're going and how you're different. And this book helps you do that in a very easy, user-friendly way. And um, that's the idea, that then you can go forward and you, you've figured out exactly why you are here. And you've articulated what your purpose is in life. You've articulated how you are different or how you want to be seen as different. You've uh, expressed what the reasons to believe in that are. And in my talks, I like saying that, you know, we believe Perrier is sophisticated because it comes from France. If it came from, and I won't name any U.S. states or Canadian provinces or cities. I don't want to put anyone <laughs> down, but we, we can all chuckle to ourselves and say, okay, if it came from X, then we wouldn't think it was so sophisticated. So what are the reasons to believe in, in your brand? Um, so the book is a, is a easily digestible do-it-yourself on defining who you are, how you're different, where you're going, and then uh, gives you a couple uh, tools to um, start expressing that, to start expressing that out in the world, including on LinkedIn, where everyone's saying kind of the same thing. So I talk about uh, helping people become a LinkedIn one percenter. I'm twisting that whole one percenter term there and trying to twist it into something positive. Um, actually standing out on the platform that complains that everyone is saying the same thing. Well, Andrews, we love the fact that you've incorporated Rush into your teachings and your work, and we really appreciate you joining us today on the Rush Fancast. Thanks so much. This is a lot of fun. I, 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 I hope it was for you too. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. So, Jar, I wanted to finish up with a quote that I found in Andrus's book, which is available on Amazon.com, by the way. Ready for this? Sure. Rush never tried to sell to everyone who will buy what they have. They only tried to sell to people who believe what they believe. How about that? No, that's nice. That's a good one. Great, right? It's true. Yeah. Very true. Very nice conversation with Andrus, huh? Yeah. I think there's a lot to be learned from the band that you can apply to your daily life. It doesn't have to be something extraordinary. It doesn't have to be, you know, the most excellent thing that you could do today it might not be, you know, climbing a mountain in China. <laughs> might be sitting down with your kids and reading a book with them. Yeah. Could just be making breakfast for my family. Right. Exactly. It's an excellent thing. It is an excellent thing to do, Steve. I think you should do that every day. I, I should. I do sometimes, not every day, but get up even earlier. <laughs> <laughs> well, the most excellent thing we did today was talk to Andrus Pone. He was great. That's right. Yep. Awesome. You can find us on Twitter. We are at rush Fancast. Instagram. You can find us at the rush cast. Email Jerry. Let him know what you thought of our conversation with Andrus at therushcast at gmail.com. The bass intro and outro, you know, that's Lex. And Jer, I hope you have a quote to wrap this up. I do. It's from Fly By Night. I think it's appropriate. Ooh, nice. Start a new chapter. I find what I'm after. It's changing every day. The change of a season is enough of a reason to want to get away. Very nice. Thanks, Jer. All right. See you later. Take it easy. <laughs>